Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're crossing over to London for coffee with my buddy, Murray Burnett. Welcome to the podcast, Murray. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, looking forward to it, uh, spending a good hour with you here early morning there in London and uh, and digging through the career and the stories and the learning which you've had here over the, more than 20 years in the industry. So I know you've had a lot, plenty of stops there across different parts of your career. And let me just maybe highlight a couple for folks who don't know you yet. You started, you know, uh, in the TV world at the beginning of your career, ended up in MBA and ISL when they were still around. Um, so that is really early, you know, sort of the tail end of that company. Obviously, you're, probably a lot of people would know you from your ESPN days where you spent almost 12 years. But you have, over the last several years, you, you were with rugby, the World Rugby Federation. You were obviously with Formula One, and now you have your own agency. So we're going to dig into all those things and find the best stories and, and the best learning, as usual, of what we have here. So let's jump into, as usual, the early part. How do you get into the industry Probably coming out of university there. Um, how do you get in there, and and what were the first you know couple of years there for you? Well, firstly, before we start, let me just say that uh, I hope this isn't a career retrospective, and merely uh, my career so far. And I hope there are many more years to come of uh, excitement in this uh, amazing business that we're both in. Oh, um, absolutely, I'm sure there's more to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I started off. Uh, really interested actually in cinema and I uh, rapidly realized I was a rubbish in front of the camera and then thought actually what I'd like to do was to be more involved behind the scenes and again probably not artistic enough to be a writer or a director but I became quite fascinated by the production side of things so you know how do you put together a film and uh, what are the different elements sort of being the sort of you know the Brunk, Bruckheimer Simpson uh, kind of type figures who are sort of putting together the Top Guns and other shows of, of, of that particular era. And so I was always fascinated by, I guess, the business of media, if you want to call it that. And I actually started off my sort of TV career working for Orbit, uh, which some of the listeners may remember was the first ever digital uh, pay television operation based in Rome. And um I kind of started off by accident, actually, because I, at the time, was working in public relations and I applied for a job and they made the classic interview mistake of uh, when I went for the interview, they said, um, before we hear about you, let us tell you a little bit about the job. And as they started to talk about the job, I realized I was not qualified at all to do this job. But in one of those sort of life-changing moments, as they were saying it, I was thinking, well, if I can sort of get my way through this interview, bullshit, if you will, uh, and I can get out to Rome, by the time they figured out I can't do the job, I'll be in Rome. And so what's the worst that's going to happen is I'll have, you know, a, a nice few months in, in Italy and then come back to England and figure it out. And oh, actually, like uh, and actually got out to Rome the whole company was in complete chaos as it was preparing for the launch and realized that actually, uh, and it's probably, you know, a, a good life lesson for all of us is that uh, most of the time life is pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty simple if you break it down. And so I was, you know, a keen learner. Uh, I, I kind of watched those around me. I wasn't involved in a sort of technical capacity. So a lot of it was, you know, common sense and hard work, if you like. And so, mm, you know, I was right. very, very fortunate to kind of make that mistake, if you like. 
So fake it till you make it. I think we've all <laughs> yeah. heard that one. Now, how old were you, just to give us a sense here? Well, what were we talking about? Your early 20s? Uh, or? Yeah, so I think I was 22 at the time, 21, 22. And, okay. you know, I actually what what had really appealed to me, those, those people that know me will know that one of my passions in life is music. And actually, uh, I had always wanted to go to Italy because I uh, loved Italian house music. And so, um, you know, the idea of uh, being accepted into a TV company, which is the next best thing if you weren't going to be in film and the opportunity to go to Italy and listen to lots of Italian house music uh, in its home country, if you will, was just a, a, an unbelievably exciting proposition i love it yeah so we're talking currently just to give a frame of folks here so we're in the mid 90s here just to give people a sense of what era we're in here and i you know i'll, I'll kind of skip a bit over into the the nba now right so uh, after sort of one or two stops there in the tv world um you landed there again as uh, in the television space right international coordinator um where was that that job was back in the uk then or which, which part of the world were you no, so from so from Rome, I spent uh, so I had a quick pit stop for a year in Budapest, working for sort of one of the sort of Canada Police International divisions, and then from there went to the NBA in Paris, where their European right. headquarters were. So, okay. um, you know, it was kind of an interesting time because it was a few years after the sort of the Barcelona Olympics and the Dream Team. Uh, Jordan was still very much sort of in his pomp, as it were, yeah. and it was really like those early days of people starting to understand or certainly american leagues understanding how big their sports could be on a global basis and mm. you know as, as you know well the nba is an incredible sort of marketing machine and you know it's funny uh, you know throughout my career since the nba if i'm ever sort of stuck with a particular business problem i often catch myself thinking so what would the nba do here because you know they they're very much uh, sort of the the market leaders i think in in sports marketing and so it was a you know super fun time to be there mm. yeah and you i think i remember one of some of the notes you sent me one of the things you were so impressed with the nba is i guess is they're super detailed oriented right i mean you know maybe you have a little example of that yeah i mean you know, the whole thing at the nba was always you know a plan, uh, plan, plan, and plan again. And, you know, it used to drive me sort of crazy because, you know, you'd do everything from, you know, timing how long it took to walk from the car to the front door when David Stern came to visit and, you know, stuff like that, which was, you know, really sort of very detailed. And that's, I mean, that particular example is a little bit stupid, but the point being is that they went into that level of detail in a lot of the scenario planning uh, and thinking about the deals that they were doing. And I think it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good life lesson that you, you can't really plan too much. Of course, you have to kind of take advantage of, uh, of circumstances and opportunities as and when they arise, but it, nothing beats sort of getting into that very, that minutiae of sort of planning and organization. And, you know, David Stern was an incredible, incredible person to work for in the sense that, you know, I was a sort of a, a lowly guy in, in an offshoot of the, you know, an, an outpost if you will of, of nba in paris but when he came to visit you know he knew the minutiae of what was in the canal plus tv agreement or he knew what the competitive situation was like in germany and you know that taught me that you know that that, that, that sort of planning and that detailed analysis comes right from the very top and it wasn't something that it was just you know down to me to uh, to do 
Mm, great, I love that story. Yeah, and and, and David Falk, he, he's he kind of talked a bit about it. With the podcast I had with him, when he, he talks about how he was dealing with the NBA, of course, and and similar, he was also a bit like that. You know, he always knew more than everyone else in the room, uh, which is really interesting. It looked like uh, David uh, David Stern was similar there. Um, yeah, great story there. I love it. Now, you know, moving on a bit from there. You well, well, sorry, Mark. Years, sorry, Mark. Because let me give you one more story. Because yeah, you know, it's. Uh, you know, it's funny how these things work out. So, so my father is a is a sort of a career diplomat, and I remember when I told him that I was being being British. I, I, I you know, I said to him, "Look, I'm going to move to Paris to work for the NBA." And <laughs> firstly, he said, "So, so what is an you know what NBA are you going for?" And I said, "No, N NBA." <laughs> and he said, "What's that?" And I said, "National Basketball League." And he said, oh, that, "That is absolutely crazy. Why on earth would you want to go and work for a basketball company?" Uh, and um, then he came back to me about six months later, and he said, uh, "He said, you know what, Murray? I was I was down. I was at the gym, and I was talking to uh, a guy that's a bit younger than me. Who and uh, he was asking me what you do. And I and, he, and I said, you were at the NBA. And he goes, oh, that's amazing. I think you might be onto something with this NBA thing. <laughs> 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 I love it. That's a great story. Yeah, that's a cool one. I think my dad still hasn't figured out what I do for a business, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> that's twenty-five years later. Um, but uh, so that's that's cool. I love it. Uh, now let's jump a bit into you know you have a you had a bit and again you know another sort of year or two there with our with another famous name um, in the industry and on the agency side, and that was ISL TV. Um, you joined them sort of uh, late there in nineteen ninety-nine. And, you know, many of us who've been around that long know that the, you know, ISL has kind of disappeared in the early 2000s um, out of all sort of crazy reasons. So, uh, you know, just just talk about that a bit, you know, how do you get in there? And then, of course, you know, what happened during those uh, two years you were there? You know, how this thing all blew up? Yeah, well, firstly, I think probably most businesses, but I, I feel most in in the sports and sort of entertainment businesses, they're very much relationship businesses. And you know, ever since Orbit, I've barely had to, you know, luckily I've barely had to apply for a job because nearly everything that's come since then has been through contacts or friends of friends. And indeed, you know, the NBA came from somebody called Matt Hutchins, who's now working for Cronky in uh, in Denver. Uh, uh, he recommended me to Heidi Ubroth, and that's how I ended up getting the job at the yeah. NBA. Then somebody else I knew from Orbit was uh, uh, Tracy Coffin was working at ISL, and so she said to me, would I be interested in going and joining her? And I think, you know, this is probably analogous to a lot of people in their early careers is that you tend to jump around a little bit more because the right opportunities arise at the, at the right time. And, you know, when I was at the NBA, I was very aware of ISL, and you'll remember those days. I mean, ISL felt was, was sort of, you know, in the pantheon of leading sports organizations i mean yeah i mean to put it into context for you know perhaps some of the the younger listeners i mean they were you know the img plus 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 if you like at the time it was they really were the sort of the 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 sort of the the gold standard and it was fifa world cup it was olympics you know i specifically worked on the swimming and fiba accounts but yeah yeah. but then i also sold you know all of their other all all of the rights portfolio into europe and it and it really was you know heady times and the two interesting things about isl was in many ways they were sort of quite visionary um 
they were sort of on the cusp of sort of launching what we would call, I guess, OTT today. And they just missed the timing by a few months and probably would have survived uh, the, the the debacle that was the ATP tennis if they had been able to uh, uh, float uh, with well, with this OTT yeah, idea. Yeah, they were looking to go public, exactly. Um, but, you know, talking about the, the, the lessons you learn on this journey, you know, ISL was a classic case of specifically in relation to the tennis is that, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Yep. And the, the, the fees that they paid for, for the ATP at the time, you know, whilst the idea was great, it's just, you know, the, the, the burden of how much they paid was too much. And that was kind of what really led to the downfall. I mean, you know, that you could probably do a whole podcast with a variety of your guests just talking about ISL. In fact, probably a 10-parter. But um, it was yeah. certainly an interesting period. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. I had a few folks already and, and we've gone in a couple of directions with ISL. But it's, you know, it's always uh, everyone has their own perspective. And obviously you were there, you know, sort of at the tail end versus some of the guys I had were, you know, sort of there at the beginning. And so it's it's always really different. Um, and, and I'm still fascinated by it as well, because that was my first job too, fair enough. You know, I was a little, you know, event organizer, whatever they called me, uh, venue manager at the 1994 World Cup in the US with ISL. So, you know, I have a, definitely have a little fondness to ISL because, you know, that's how kind of my career started too. Uh, um, so you were a sales, so you were doing, you were selling TV rights, is it? Basically, was that yeah. the role or? All right, yes. Okay. So I uh, anything I was, specific I, you were selling, or I couldn't. You said earlier. Yeah, so I was account managing uh, on a global basis for for FINA swimming and FIBA oh, basketball, right, and then uh, selling all of the ISL rights, largely in Eastern Europe and and a few and France and Italy and a couple a couple of other territories. Got it. Cool. All right. Swimming and basketball. I love it. Now. So then, you know, again, ISL kind of goes up in smoke there, um, you know, declares bankruptcy and all the fun stuff. Um, how do you land at ESPN? Was that, again, another uh, sort of intro from someone or, you know, how did that next job come about? Well, uh, that's quite a good story. So there, there was definitely some sort of bumpiness towards the end of ISL. And you kind of it's easy to say in retrospect, you could the writing was on the wall. But I think at the time, I didn't want to believe that it was kind of really imploding. So I remember going to Sportel Miami, and I think it must have been 2001, uh, where I'd, I, should, I should have known the writing was on the wall because uh, my my credit card wouldn't work. And so I actually had to book the flight on my own personal <laughs> credit card. Okay. Uh, and I went to ISL, uh, sorry, I went to Sportel Miami to tell everybody that reports of ISL's death were greatly exaggerated and everything was going fine and all the rest of it. And one evening I met uh, Russell Wolf, who was heading up ESPN International. And he mm -hmm. said to me, oh, you know, I've heard your name a lot. Um, we should talk. Uh, and he said to me a few weeks afterwards, I want to offer you a job to be employee number one for ESPN in Europe. And I said to him, thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate it. But I really want to stick with ISL and see how it goes. And literally about 10 days after that, ISL finally imploded. And I called Russell back and I said, uh, you know, that job you were offering me, um, is, it, <laughs> is, it, is it still available? And, uh, you know, luckily it was. And uh, sure enough, a month or two later, I joined uh, ESPN as uh, employee number one in the Disney offices in London. 
and it was uh it's kind of funny you know literally turned up on my first day at the disney building nobody knew that i was supposed to be there and i ended up sort of reading the newspaper until about one o'clock in the afternoon when when sort of the, the east coast had woken up and uh was then you know able to get a, a computer a place to sit uh get in touch with the right people and uh you know from there it led to sort of you know 11 and a half uh, uh, great and super fun years yeah, yeah. Let, let's spend a bit of time there and dissect all that a bit now you know when so you know russell wolf was was he your direct uh supervisor or superior in that sense was he you were working with him or because he's obviously well known around the world too Yeah, so I started off working sort of directly for Russell, and then pretty soon after that, it must have been probably six months or so, uh, Timo Lume joined as managing director for Europe, Africa, Middle East. And so worked very closely with Timo for a couple of years, or maybe it's a little bit longer than that, three years or so. And then um, ended up, uh, there were a couple of other people that, uh, Ross Hare and uh, Lynn Frank, who came sort of after, after Timo left to go to the Olympics. So, so ESPN International, which I guess it was called right out of the UK then, what was really your remit? Go take the ESPN channel and, and bring it around the world? So you were selling uh, to uh, pay TV operators or start your own, start new channels in, uh, in other countries? Or what was really the, the, the focus of the group? Uh, all of the above, really. I, I guess you break it down to sort of three key things, which was... ESPN, sort of one of the sort of uh, unknown secrets of ESPN, certainly at the time, was it just had an incredible uh, rights portfolio. So it was everything from, you know, Brazil international soccer matches right through to the Muhammad Ali archive, X Games, college sports, NFL, NHL. And so my primary job was selling those rights to other broadcasters, mainly in places where ESPN didn't have channels, right. supervising the channels which they had at uh, in Europe, Africa, well, so I should say in, in, in Africa and in the Middle East at the time. And there's kind of a nice full circle with that because at Orbit, one of the sports channels had been ESPN. And so it worked very closely with ESPN when uh, in the Orbit days and then sort of, you know, was on the other side of the fence, if you like, at trying to sell them more content and more channels uh, when I when I was at ESPN. And then the mm. third part of it is identifying new opportunities for ESPN to to build its brand, whatever that meant. So largely looking at new TV channels, but also looking at building events and brand licensing and all of those kind of things. Got it, got it. Okay, cool. Yeah, did you ever come across Bernard Stewart? Because I've had Bernard on my podcast too, and obviously he spent 40 years in ESPN pretty much. So did you guys ever uh, cross paths at somewhere? Bernard's a, Bernard's a good buddy of mine, and uh, I, I listened with great pleasure at the podcast that you did with him because uh, aside from having uh, the probably the best voice in sports, he's also <laughs> uh, just an amazing, amazing character and a lovely person. So I loved listening to that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was, a, you know, he's certainly a, a, you know, a mentor for, for me in terms of my time there and was always a, a great support to everything that, that I was trying to do. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, and it's funny because we we were we represented ESPN for a couple of years. It wasn't that long, but uh, I think we did the deal with Bernard at that time. And and so yeah, so I'm a bit familiar with the library and and some of the content you guys had. And all right, so it makes sense. So that's what you're going out there distributing. Um, now you know, as you were there, you know, twelve years I think uh, almost in, in total. Um, 
you know, now later on, you know, you were sort of part of ESPN rather than ESPN International. I don't know whether is that just it's just a different name or it was it was a different kind of role um, or you were always sort of really on the international side of things. No, always pretty much on the international side of things. I mean, certainly spending a lot of time with the guys in in the US uh, and coordinating carefully with them. But you know, th those sort of twelve years were really the when ESPN was on a tear in terms of its international and certainly European expansion. So y you may recall during that period, we also launched ESPN UK with a package of Premier League that was acquired from uh, uh, from Satanta and then acquired directly from the Premier League. And that was, you know, a super fun time to be involved. And, you know, y people often say, when you spend 12 years somewhere, you know, what, what's keeping you there? And I said, you know, every time I got bored, something new would come along that was, you know, exciting that I wanted to get involved with. And whether that was, you know, having an X Games in Dubai, whether that was a launching a channel with the Premier League in the UK, you know, there were tons of sort of exciting things that ESPN was at the forefront of at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's talk a bit about it, uh, especially the UK channel and uh, and of course Premier League rights in it. Um, again, from my recollection, it didn't last very long, right? It was I don't know how long. Do you have to admit? Was it one one uh, sort four. of block of three years or how many? How long? Did four it years. Four years. Four years in total, right? So again, you know, again, you know, obviously the idea makes sense, right? Uh, it's the the top uh, content in the in the country. Um, and here comes the biggest broadcast, maybe potentially you know, the biggest uh, sports broadcaster in the world. Everyone knows, comes in. What didn't work? Why did it only last four years? You know, what, what is from your perspective? I think, I think it's probably a problem that a lot of rights holders face, which is, sorry, a lot of, let's call them content renters face, which is that is all you're doing. You're just renting the content. And so sometimes you end up becoming a victim of your own success in that, you know, if you if you attract a lot of people because you've got the right content mix on your channels, you, you then end up inflating the price for the next time that the rights come around because you need them more and the rights owner sees how popular they've been for you. So it becomes sort of this slightly paradoxical thing if you almost don't yeah. want to be too successful. I think right. also, as you know, it's kind of mandated uh, that the length of contracts in Europe are mandated by, by various sort of competition regulation. And so really you know, three year, a three-year cycle is not enough time to really – be embedded and to 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 make uh, uh, to to make a name for yourself. And I think you know you see how ESPN functions in the US with you know 10, 15 year deals, which look eye watering at the time, but it allows it gives them some certainty in the future. And of course, you know uh, ESPN UK was caught a little bit by the fact that there were other people coming into the market. So you had you know. BT that was BT. sort of much more much more focused because mm. it, they had another revenue stream which was to to build their broadband subscriber base and so right. it became quite difficult for an ESPN to sort of compete when their sole revenue source was was subscriptions from the channel i'm exaggerating slightly because you know there's obviously sponsorship and advertising and other things but really it was a sole revenue source in in terms of subscriptions yeah Yeah, it makes sense. So did you guys, and then again, you know, you would know, um, so you didn't manage to renew the rights and then on the back of it, not having Premier League, the, the decision was made, doesn't make sense to have the channel at all or what was sort of the sequence here? Yes, that, I mean, that's it basically. 
without the sort of key driver content, it became sort of untenable to, to kind of keep going, really. And so, yeah, that was kind of that was that was wound up, and that, that was, was pretty close to the end. That was pretty close to the to the end of my time there. And it wasn't, um, you know, I didn't leave because because of that. It was just uh, uh, sort of lucky timing for me that uh, World Rugby sort of approached me just as that was kind of all happening or just after all of that had happened. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And, and we'll get into the rugby in a minute here. Um, but, you know, the 12 years you were there, you know, from as a early 2000 to, let's say, to mid-2013 mid year, um, you know, that obviously is somewhat the heydays of pay TV around the world, right? All over the world, pay TVs are popping up and spending, you know, huge amounts of money, uh, you know, driving obviously the the rights fees up but also you know driving of course um you know the i guess the channel distribution right uh what would be sort of an example of where you say wow you know this really worked you know the uk example maybe worked for a period of time but maybe in the long run wasn't wasn't it was as you said wasn't sustainable but you know is there a particular territory in the world where you go wow you know that's where espn went in and really did a good job you know outside let's say leave asia alone because that's another whole story altogether <laughs> So I think there are probably two examples. Like if I was to sort of pick one that I was involved with, we were there at the sort of the early days of the, the massive growth in the Middle East. So actually, you know, having been an, an, an Orbit alumni, I, I was also responsible for, for taking ESPN away from Orbit and moving it to ART at the time. And that went from, you know, one ESPN channel to three ESPN channels on uh, on ART. And that was taking advantage of, you know, that the, the, the dynamic market that existed in the Middle East at the time. But I think if you were to look at sort of one around outside the US that's been a really sort of big success for ESPN and certainly has had a lot of longevity, it's sort of ESPN Latin America. And I think that was largely down to, you know, some of the listeners may know Guillermo Tabanera, um, who's, you know, very well known in the sort of Latin American uh, sports media uh, environment and, you know, just a very, very smart operator. Uh, obviously, having local offices in, in Argentina was absolutely key and in Mexico. And in some ways, you know, they benefited from being sort of roughly in the same time zone as ESPN, because I think that that just, you know, that ease of communication at the time really helped. I think also there were some similarities and better understanding around certainly sort of, let's call it Hispanic slash Latin American sort of culture and trends in the US, as opposed to as opposed to internet, as, as opposed to say somewhere in Europe. I mean, you know, Russell Wolf always used to joke that, you know, when he was with his ESPN domestic colleague, uh, they would say, so, so, you know, what's the weather like in, in international then, Russell? <laughs> you know, but it's kind of, it, it was seen as this kind of amorphous one territory uh, place, whereas in actual fact, you know, certainly when you get to Europe, what works in Russia is very different to what works in Spain, both in terms of sports and in terms of structure. Uh, whereas arguably, I think in, in, in South America and Mexico, there was probably a better understanding at ESPN of how those how those worked. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think the cool part about it as well is listening to you is, of course, it you know it gave you a massive exposure right around the world. You know, from the sound of it, you know, working in the Middle East, working in, you know across Europe, and and you know throw a bit of Latin America in a mix. Uh, I don't know how much you were doing in Asia, but uh, that's huge, right? I mean, those are just amazing territories, and, and I'm sure tons of learning on the back of it, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I think the other aspect to it was the sort of the Disney relationship because. 
ESPN in the US is probably at the time was certainly very independent of Disney, whereas I think the international offices of ESPN were much, much closer to the sort of the, the, the Disney company as well. And being exposed to the likes of Bob Iger and people uh, who were working at Disney, it was fascinating to sort of see how they think about things. And, you know, you talk about the smartest mm-hmm. guys in the room. I think I, I haven't met many people that are smarter than some of the people at the top of ESPN and Disney. So, you know, that was was uh, uh, a great uh, a great opportunity to spend time with the, the likes of you know Bob and uh, and George Bodenheimer and Bernard and a few others. Mm, yeah, that sounds like fun. Now uh, let's have a quick one before we move on. Here is uh, we touched on earlier a bit the ESPN MVNO, uh, which is stands for Mobile Virtual Network Operator, which is basically a sub sort of set of a, of another operator. Uh, and I believe ESPN was lo- trying to launch one, or and and you know one went in it. Uh, maybe it didn't work exactly the way, but then on the back of it, obviously a new business sort of came out of it. Just just uh, share a bit of you know what you know about that. Yeah. So. I think it's an interesting thing that I learned at ESPN was that ESPN was never afraid to to trial new things or to do di- do things a bit differently, mm. and it, it was generally a philosophy of sort of let's try ten things. We know that five of them are probably going to fail, three of them will be a modest hit, and two will be you know super hits. But unless mm. we do all ten, we don't know which is going to be which, and the MVNO is a is a great example of that and. You know, they launched ESPN the phone in the US. Uh, it became pretty apparent immediately after they launched it that despite having invested a lot of money in it, that they just didn't have the, let's call it telecommunications know-how. Mm-hmm. And so they were smart enough to recognize it wasn't going the way that they thought it was going to go and to, to terminate it fairly quickly. But then also, you know, be be analytical as to why it wasn't working and coming off the back of that they became one of the largest mobile sports mobile publishers in the US because of the learnings that they'd made of what works on a phone and doesn't work on a phone so you know they were able to sort of turn the defeat into into a, into some sort of victory or or new new type of business if you like Smart pivoting there, right? I like it. Yeah, and, and I, I totally agree. I mean, in, in any business, it doesn't matter which one, uh, that is always the key to the puzzle. So that's a great example, you know, even in a large organization as, as big as ESPN is, um, how they did that. Yeah, no, cool stuff. Uh, now, uh, let, let's move on a bit here then. Uh, let's let's talk rugby, right? So um, as you said earlier, you know, sort of at the tail end of ESPN, um, you know, uh, there was a new opportunity coming about, um, and you ended up again uh, staying, moving on. I guess as sort of head of broadcasting then for World Rugby. Um, you know, just start there. Um, where is World Rugby based? Actually, is there, are they UK based? I'm assuming. So World Rugby or IRB as it was at the time was actually based in Dublin, but they had opened a UK office or a a London office because they were launching the 2015 Rugby World Cup. So I spent a couple of years sort of London based, if you like, working out of that office and then subsequently the last couple of years uh, sort of based somewhere between London and uh, and Dublin. But, you know, as the sort of governing body of the sport, it was quite an, an interesting transition to go from what was ultimately a you know a purely commercial business like ESPN to sort of a, 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 let's call it a regulatory body in in world rugby whose job was as much about uh, growing the game, protecting the sport, 
as well as the sort of the commercial angle. And you know, and the other interesting thing for me was it was a much broader role than just media. It was, uh, I, I mean, although my title changed a little bit throughout the time, I was effectively chief commercial officer the the, the whole time I was there, and that you know that encompassed you know uh, all aspects of uh, sort of the commercial running of the sport from from licensing and ticketing and hospitality through to sponsorship and TV rights. Mm, cool. Yeah, again, sounds like a great place, to, fun place to be. Um, so which World Cup were you involved in? Which one uh, was it at that time, which you were working on, I guess, bringing in sponsors and all the fun stuff? Uh, and where was it hosted? Yes, it was the 2015 Rugby World Cup, which was hosted in England. And right, okay. then obviously the, the planning for the 2019 Rugby World Cup, which was in Japan. Right, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, so two big ones. Um, so let, let's talk a bit about it. I mean, you know, you are head of commercial, you know, chief commercial officer. That means your job is now to bring in the money. So what what deals did you cut, um, you know, which were, you know, new deals maybe uh, rather than just, I guess, extensions or, you know, just, just if you can give a couple of examples, it would be great. Well, so I was responsible for Rugby World Cup, but then also all of the other uh, competitions that they run. And certainly in, in sort of your your neck of the woods in, in terms of Asia, Hong Kong Sevens is probably one of the, the better known sort of mm -hmm. uh, large scale events. So working on that as part of the uh, World Rugby Seven series. And so was responsible for sort of actually putting that series together. And then also right. uh, negotiating with uh, Giles Morgan at HSBC at the time to sort of renew HSBC's agreement for that. And, you know, in some ways that was, although Rugby World Cup is very big, that was probably the most uh, complex and certainly for me, most interesting thing, because you're actually trying to create and build a, a much smaller sport, because arguably the Rugby World Cup is, you know, one of the top international sports events in the world. Absolutely. And I, I won't say it looks after itself, but it's not. It, the, the challenge isn't as big as trying to develop something from scratch or, or, or something brand new. So we were very lucky at Rugby World Cup to have six amazing top level partners who all ended up renewing. And then we also had uh, a lot of support from uh, TF1 in France and uh, an ITV in the UK who, again, both renewed. And that, you know, wasn't without sort of some complexity and difficulty there, but uh, the top partners were generally very, very supportive of, of what we were doing. I mean, you know, we had a, f a few hiccups. We uh, had to uh, redo a number of the kickoff times for 2015 because uh, we hadn't consulted properly with uh, with TF1 and uh, that had some material impacts on, on, on them, which was uh, definitely a few sleepless nights. But, um, you know, generally speaking, when you, when you work in the world of rugby, it's a lot more of a sort of it's less commercial, slightly more collegiate and more purpose led. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, positive aspects to that. But there are also some some negatives in the sense that, you know, people don't always think in a in a very commercial manner. It's much more about my word is my bond. Um, and, you know, you have to kind of. Yeah, you know, I always remember Brett Gosper, my my, my the, the CEO at the time, sort of calling me into his office and saying that one of the unions had uh, had complained about me, saying that I was taking too commercial a view on on things. And you know, Brett sort of laughed and said, "You know, I'm I'm very happy to hear that my chief commercial officer is is being very commercial because that's what we've hired you to do." But there's definitely yeah. that kind of you know dynamic where, you know, yeah. the unions didn't always want you to see it as being all about the money. 
money. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know. And, and again, it, you don't hear that that often, right? I mean, every sport at the end of the day is all driven by money, uh, and some more than others, of course. And we'll talk about later when we go to your F one career. That uh, you know, I'm sure they're a little different there. But uh, yeah, you know, I guess rugby has a bit of that feel to it, maybe. And, and now hearing it from you, from an insider, that's that's a really interesting story. Um, now, again, let's uh, when when you talk rugby. Uh, and you talk sevens and all this stuff. Obviously, again, that that goes really global. He said, you know, Hong Kong sevens are probably maybe the, the the sort of poster child of that and massively successful. You know, what what are the other sort of you know uh, things you guys were doing uh, for world rugby at that time? And you know, you know, having the World Cup in the UK, of course, was massive too. Um, you know, so what was sort of you know, is there anything sort of you were able to do which really sort of broke the mold a bit and, and created something different and new? It's interesting. Um, I think, I mean, there was some obvious things, which I think, you know, Brett Gosper was largely leading on, which was things like, you know, rebranding to World Rugby, you know, trying to say what we did on the tin, you know, calling it IRB, the, the International Rugby Board kind of very much gives you that feeling of, you know, people smoking cigars in conference rooms in, you know, London and uh, or Twickenham, I should say, with a, you know, with a smoking jacket on exactly, no women to be seen, very sort of, you know, uh, uh, middle-aged uh, sort of Commonwealth countries plus France, if you like. And, yeah. you know, his job, and I think he did a very successful job, was to try and present a much more modern image to, to the game. And certainly with the Sevens World Series, we were very successful in adding events in places like Canada and the US and really trying to build in some of the some of the new markets. And of course, not that it had anything to do with me, but the Olympic inclusion uh, it, it, in Rio was an absolute you know, game changer in terms of putting Sevens on the map and indeed you know, growing the awareness around rugby. So you know, that was certainly probably the biggest change to the world of rugby while, while I was there. Um, Did you guys use agencies at all or it was all commercial stuff was all done in-house? No, so we used IMG for Rugby World Cup and then we used uh, CSM for a, a lot of the work around the Sevens World Series. And actually I was brought in to try and take away some of that dependency and indeed – you know, subsequently, I think that, that, that they're farming out less and less to agencies and trying to become a little bit more, you know, masters of their own destiny. But, you know, interestingly enough, and again, this is probably the subject for a, a whole separate podcast about the role of agencies with rights holders, because I think that there is a it's never 100 percent one way or 100 percent the other way. I think there's always a need to kind of bring external advice in to make sure that you are being honest with yourself about best practices, about new thinking and about really you know pushing yourself yeah and yeah that's correct and i also i like the uh the analysis earlier where you said you know as a broadcaster you kind of you know you do yourself a disservice by being too good well that's the same for an agency right <laughs> the minute you bring in too much money they go hang on a minute why am i paying all the commission or whatever fees there are and uh, off you go right and they try to do it in-house so it, it is it, it, it kind of works for both of those scenarios there uh, now let's me before we move on uh, into your f1 world just you know i don't know if you can share some numbers i mean how big is the the work we will have what sort of numbers are we talking about even in totality what is out there just to give people a sense of the scale and size of this well the way that it works for the for the certainly for i should say world rugby and and rugby world cup because they're somewhat analogous is that effectively after each rugby world cup 
world rugby spends the following four years drawing down against the revenues that it makes and you know in totality i think it's in their annual report that they're making uh, sort of 250 million on a on a rugby world cup and that's grown considerably i think that's the number for 2015 and i think it's grown fairly considerably since then so you know when you compare it against some soccer numbers it's relatively modest but it's still a fairly substantial amount and the key that that world rugby is trying to focus on at the moment is trying to actually diversify a little bit their 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 sort of uh, you know where the revenue is coming from so to try and bring more of that coming out of the sevens and and, and other and other things but you know i mean the rugby world cup is just such a, a an utterly unique uh, experience and after I'll, I'll share one little story with you before we move on to to formula one which was probably one of the most extraordinary things i've ever been involved with was was actually maradona coming to the rugby world cup at twickenham and okay. you know I think probably most of your guests, if not all of them, and you included, have uh, met a bunch of you know athletes and famous people on our on our various different sports journeys. But I've never seen anything quite like the sort of uh, adulation and charisma that exists around mm-hmm. around Mar- Maradona. And uh, you know he turned up and he was uh, he was you know literally he needed four bodyguards, not. Just to, just to stop him getting mobbed, he couldn't really walk through the crowds because everybody was coming up and wanting to talk to him. And so we took him up to the hospitality suite, and I, I was looking after him. And uh, I saw a, one of his bodyguards who was called Tiny, uh, uh, which was uh, not a reflection; it was exactly the opposite of how big this guy was. Um, I saw him leaving the 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 suite after he'd had a quick chat to Maradona, and um, he came back about half an hour later and uh he came back with a sort of a, a a pile of food all wrapped up and it was it turned out it was you know sausages and and chips or whatever and i said to him so tiny why did uh why did you uh you know we're in hospitality you've got all this food here and he's like yeah yeah but you know maradona's just he, he just likes like sausage and chips <laughs> he didn't, he, he doesn't he didn't want to he doesn't want to have any of the sort of the fancy food and indeed when he walked into the hospitality the the person he ended up being most friendly with was the barman behind you know behind the bar because he, he was just a very you know down to earth and and, uh, and normal guy and uh, um you know the biggest problem you know during the the rugby match was actually that that when he sat uh, uh, for those people that aren't familiar at twickenham it's boxes and then it's got sort of uh, open seats in front of the box and so you're literally sort of just a balcony away from the people sort of in front of you and the biggest problem was that as soon as he sat down to watch the match like the whole section in front of us had turned around and was looking to see what his reaction was. And, you know, in the end, you know, at one point he had almost had to say, look, turn around and, you know, watch the rugby that's happening in front of you. Don't don't pay any attention to me. Um, Uh, It's incredible. uh, Yeah, well, he was a big star, no doubt about it. Um, Now, let's, you know, it sort of is is a nice little segue over. Uh, I'm sure you've been following a bit uh, what's happening right now in rugby, especially with CVC coming in and, uh, you know, you know, buying out pieces or or investing in in parts of it from, you know, the league in in the UK to, of course, uh, become the sort of sevens member there in the in the Six Nations. I mean, and, and, you know, having then, you know, going into the F1 world here. And what do you see? What what do you see? um, you know, being in, in the federation, where do you see that CVC can really make a difference to rugby, um, just on a sort of general perspective? 
So one of the issues that you have, and it's probably not exclusive to, to rugby, it's, I'm sure it's true in, in a bunch of other federations as well, is that the way that governance is, is structured means that unless you bring some external, uh, um, I'm not sure what, quite what the right word is, pressure or, or influence, it's very difficult to, to change your funding models or to, or, or to effect rapid change. And I think that that's going to be the biggest impact that, that CVC could have uh, in the rugby world is actually sort of pushing change to happen more quickly because I think that there is a bit of inertia that exists in this in a sport like rugby and not only that you know further further to our earlier conversation about agencies you know you need people coming from the outside who can see the wood for the trees they can actually see what needs to be done with a little bit more clarity than maybe those that are sort of working in in it day in day out and I'm sure that CVC will already with their existing investments can bring sort of you know, diverse competitions and organisations closer together. Yeah, no, no, I think that makes sense, and 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 yeah, that that is that's a good reason why you want uh, people like that around with with the right amount of money, as well as bringing different expertise and and skills to it, and uh, that makes all the sense in the world. So, it'd be interesting to see that, of course. So, let's jump in the into the world of F one. So, you know, you did your rugby, and now you decided let's do some motorsports here. <laughs> Again, you know, how did that happen? You know, where where was that? Uh, you know, that that handover here. Well, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, I met uh, Sean Bratches and got to know him pretty well when I was at uh, ESPN and we had stayed in touch. And then he used to come to London sort of, um, you know, I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan and he's an Arsenal fan. So we ended up, uh, you know, having a lot of banter over the years about our, our relative rivalries on the football pitch. And, you know, he used to come a couple of times a year to London to to see Arsenal play and would usually give me a call and either give me a ribbing or, or, or we'd go out for a <laughs> or something and he you know he said look I've, I've accepted a job as managing director under liberty for formula one will will you come and i said yes and it goes and i said well so what's the job and he goes well i haven't quite worked that out yet um but would you know are you interested and i said yes absolutely you know the opportunity to work on something like formula one was just um you know yeah. whatever the role was i just didn't really feel like i was going to be able to sort of turn it down because you know uh, Sean used to refer to it as the 60-year-old startup because Bernie was brilliant in many, many ways, and uh, but yet um, it wasn't a sports marketing organisation when Liberty bought it. It was very much a, you know, motorsport event series, if you like. And it's a testament to Bernie that they needed to hire something like 250 people to replace him. But you know, essentially, <laughs> okay. you know, I haven't heard that one number yet, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. He's you know, a big man. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it was you know, the, the the cupboard was bare, if you like. You know, there was no digital activation. There was nobody really managing sponsorships. There was sort of no um, uh, no forward thinking marketing about how to grow the interest in the sport, and so. Liberty was literally starting with a blank sheet of paper. And, you know, that's kind of an intoxicating experience to be involved mm. in. And so I ended up joining as sort of head of commercial partnerships. So looking after effectively all their sponsors and then trying to figure out how we would add some more to the roster and, you know, make it bigger and better. Um, but just, yeah. you know, to your earlier point about CVC, I just don't think CVC is ever going to find a model like they found with Bernie because that is just such a unique set of circumstances. And, you know, they did astonishingly well out of that investment. And, um, 
you know, I, I think that in many ways they're looking to find that again, and it's just going to be very, very difficult because, it, as I said, it's such a unique set of circumstances where you have effectively really one person running the sport. Yeah, I agree, uh, and I've heard that a couple of times from others as well. That uh, you know, it's it, you know, it, it was lucky. Luck is maybe the, as usual. Luck you make, um, but uh, yeah, they had a. It was so so different, um, and it's going to be very difficult to replicate in that same format. Uh, that's for sure. Um, now let's it's you know again let's stick a bit more here around the F one world. So you were head of global sponsorship, commercial partnerships. Um, you know, again, is it you're bringing in new partners, obviously, for the race series, which means it's branding on on the racetrack side. Um, obviously, the teams do their own stuff. Um, or, you know, how would you describe exactly that what you're doing there those couple of years? No, that that's pretty much exactly what it was. It's very much the trackside advertising and and hospitality that you you know as as part of a package that you're selling to the sponsors. Right. But I think you're also trying to work. More, more closely with the teams to try and work out how everybody can benefit from uh, you know from growing the sport so you know a lot more coordination with the teams around what their sponsors uh, and, and sponsorship requirements were trying to work more closely with the circuits to make sure that they were also able to maximize their sort of commerciality if you will but then primarily finding new partners so the scale of the agreements is is just huge and so you know, it was a material difference if you lost one, and it was a material difference if you could add one. And so, the the sort of the desire to grow that roster was uh, was one of the reasons why Liberty bought the company is that they saw huge opportunities in the sponsorship space. They also saw the opportunity to add new races, but also just saw it as a, an a, an under undeveloped asset, if you will. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, we had you know our experiences over the years with F1 as well. In some cases, trying to bring some sponsor to them from Asia. Um, obviously, we did the same with teams, but also you know working with them on hospitality. We, we ran their pedicle program in when they when the when they had races in India those years, and so uh, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to to work with it in this in this world. Um, now that's you know maybe there's one or two specific deals we were involved in um, the new sponsors. I mean you know from obviously Johnny Walker is there you got dhl you know over years had done a lot of different things uh you know is there anyone in particular where you were which you brought in during your you know three years there or yeah so i think we brought in the largest ever uh deal that had has been done in anywhere in formula one i believe which was a aramco uh you know right. a 10-year a 10-year deal first time they'd done a global sponsorship and uh, and indeed you know you'll see it on the track today and uh it's uh that was a really interesting and exciting one to be involved with as much because they had been approached by so many other people and as you can imagine with you know the the richest company in the world uh, every sports organization had been to them and so you know it was intellectually it was kind of a satisfying experience to try and work out how you get to the right people how you convince them that it's the right thing how you put together the right proposition for them so you know it was quite a it's quite a fun thing to put together um but you know interestingly enough you know out of all the sponsorship deals i've done you know where, wherever it's been size is 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 always good for the ego right so you want to do the biggest deals but sometimes actually you look at 
certain deals and you say, actually, I'm just really proud, not of the size, but of the particular innovation that happened in one particular deal or the way that we were able to, to, to help marry the objectives of, of a brand with, a, with, you know, with money for us or, or how we wanted to achieve things. And you know, perhaps a good example of that was bringing AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, into Formula One where you know, they started off the conversation saying, we don't do sponsorship. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, we've got no interest in having our logos trackside. We kind of like Formula One because we're a technology company. You're a, you know, a, a technology-led sport. So we can see that there's some synergies there. And um, yeah, we just, uh, but, but, but we're, not a, we're not a sponsor. And so, you know, we kind of took that and said, okay, well, so, so what is important to you? And, and anyway, through a long sort of iteration process, we came up with this idea of uh, AWS, uh, sorry, F1 Insights powered by AWS. And you'll see them on air today, you know, a bunch of different graphics, which are effectively trying to unlock some of the mysticism around the sport for the casual viewer through very specific graphics. So the idea being, uh, we're presenting you some interesting insights into the race, which are created by having Amazon Web Services products crunch numbers very quickly to help unlock these ins- unlock interesting stories for you. Uh, and that was a you know not necessarily the biggest deal that I did at Formula One, but one that was you know really exciting. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, you know, and AWS is, a, is an amazing company, so they they will bring some, they bring smart money along, right? Uh, it's not just a nice check potentially they could write, but uh, there's obviously a lot of really clever people again who can also make the sport better, right? And they, I like these type of deals too, uh, where you know the sponsor really can add value, whether it's from a technology or or in other forms, right? Uh, now, now I want to stick a bit on Aramco. I mean, first of all, you know, not everyone in the world probably knows who they are. It's the, it's a large, as you said, it's it's. I think it's is as a value from a valuation. I think it's the largest company in the world. Right? It's the Saudi national, I guess, oil company. Um, and uh, you know, so now, you know, did you ended up flying in and out of of Saudi then for for those deals, or you know, how can you visualize doing a deal with a with the largest you know company in the world out of Saudi? Well, firstly, I should say that uh, Rob Slocum, who's now the Joint Managing Director at CAA Sports, was sort of pretty instrumental in terms of putting the Aramco deal together. And uh, uh, that's as much, you know, his tenacity in terms of finding out the right people and then him and I sort of tag teaming on putting the, the right deal terms together. And that included, you know, flying out to see them in uh, in eastern Saudi Arabia in, in Dharan and uh you know, for me, that was kind of interesting because I, I grew up as a child in, in Saudi. So it was kind of fun to sort of go back there all those all those years yeah. later. Um, but what but what what really unlocked the deal for us was the that, that we were able to get to the to the right mix of people. So, you know, it's kind of a, the, the cliche of, of putting together that matrix of uh, of people that are decision makers, that are influencers, right. et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and putting the deal together and yeah. and being able to sort of make that work for us. But, but we were also, you, you know, I, I do believe you make your own luck, but we were lucky that we came across a couple of people in Aramco who had previously worked for Philip Morris and obviously Philip Morris had a had a long history in Formula One and so they were very uh, understanding of the value of something like Formula One and were able to help us translate the, the value of Formula One into a language that 
that the Aramco management could understand. And, mm. you know, I think, you know, if you were, if I was a, sort of advising anybody, and I'm sure many of your previous guests would say the same, is that with a lot of these deals, you've got to be prepared for the fact that it takes a long time from start to finish. I mean, you know, arguably Aramco was lightning quick and it took 12 months. Um, but uh, also it's just tenacity. It's just hanging in there because, you know, the, it was that classic thing of, you know, I was utterly convinced the deal was dead and, you know, the next day they called me up and said, we want to do the deal. So you know, it's oh, just right. kind of, it's kind of yeah. stick, sticking at it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I love that. Um, now, is there an official number out there of the value of it? Um, what's been written, which you can share? The number's not out there, but it would be, you know, let's let's just say that top level partnerships at, at, at Formula One are, are, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year, multiples of tens of millions of dollars. And so, you know, it's, it was a pretty substantial number, certainly when you look at it sort of over a 10 year period. Did it include then the race as well? Or that was, again, a completely separate uh, part of the deal? Uh, did it include bringing the race to Saudi or that wasn't part of it? That wasn't part of it. Um, All right. As as you know, as 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 you'll know, and many of your listeners and guests will know, it's somewhat opaque how all of these things work in some of these in some of the Middle Eastern countries and indeed places like China as well. And I'm sure that 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 there was a strategy that said, look, you know, it would be good if Aramco is a partner here, and if they do it. Uh, for their own reasons, that's great, but that's also going to be part of a, you know, a bigger chess game of us wanting to host international events. But we're not going to sort of physically link them all together. We're just going to kind of keep these different plates spinning uh, separately. Yeah, 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 that makes complete sense. And I like what you said earlier as well. And I want to just jump on it. Is this whole concept of when you, you know, and I think. In big TV deals, it's similar, right? Um, although it's maybe, uh, you know, but for sure in sponsorship where you do have so many different stakeholders, right, on different levels, right, all the way from, the, of course, the CEO who eventually maybe signs the check, but there is a board, right? Uh, there is the chief marketing officer. There is whatever people below that. Uh, and I've that's one thing I've always te tried to teach all my sales guys is that, you know, you literally have to find ways to get access to every one of them. That doesn't mean they can, right? You know, as, as a salesperson or whatever level you are, even if you're a VP of something, that doesn't mean you're always going to get access to the board member or, or you know, even the C-level in, in these large organizations. But you got to find others, right? And whether it's a board member in your organization or someone else you know who might have a link in it. So I think that is, that's a huge learning there. And it's interesting to hear that you said that as well, that you guys obviously work closely there with, uh, with another agency to, to really tackle that and, and then just go through it. Um, it's, a big, it's a big process and it takes that type of effort, right? It's, it's like a little operation, right, to, to get these deals done. 100%. And, and actually, the other observation I'd have is that, uh, no, well, two observations, no two sponsorship deals are the same. They're all very, very unique and different, uh, different in terms of the way that they're put together, uh, and how you attack it and approach it. But also, uh, uh, somebody's title doesn't necessarily correlate to their importance in helping you get the deal done. Right. So yeah, you frequently point. make the mistake of kind of, oh, I've, you know, if I can't get to the head of the sponsor, sponsorship or the CEO, then I can't get the deal done. Well, actually, you know, who's to say that, you know, somebody actually quite lowly in the marketing department isn't somebody that ends up playing 
you know, golf with the son of the CEO every weekend and tells him that Formula One is the most amazing thing. And then the son says, Dad, have you ever thought of Formula One? And all of a sudden, you know, you've made a a connection there. And indeed, you know, I I don't think I'm betraying any confidence to say, you know, that that happened to a certain degree with with um, with Aramco in that the CEO wasn't a massive Formula One fan. but was confident enough because a few people in his inner circle said to him, no, we really think this Formula One thing could be a good thing. He just, you know, he shrugged his shoulders and said, well, if you guys all think it's right, then let's do it. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And, and again, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's true. Um, you know, is that we've, we've, you know, TSA has been in you know, for 20 years involved in the in the TV world and in sponsorship. And, and I've obviously, therefore, I'm allowed to play in both of those buckets, too. And there is a huge difference. Um, a TV deal is, is reasonably straightforward. Um, the, the big difference, of course, also is in a TV world, you have a broad, you know, let's say whoever is the buyer, it's called a broadcaster. Um, they need content, right? It's a natural thing. You have a conversation. A sponsor doesn't need you as the sponsorship, right? I mean, they can spend all their money on traditional marketing and everything else. Right, so it's a completely different form of selling, right? And you've been on both, right? I mean, I would argue right? TV is <laughs> a whole lot uh, easier than sponsorship, right? You, you can't you can't see the broad smile that's on my face when you say that because you know you're 100 percent right. It's you know the the line I always like to to use is that there are uh, uh, no sponsorship director ever got fired for not doing a sponsorship, but there are plenty who have got fired for doing the wrong sponsorship, and so they they end up being very very skittish. Uh, at the end of the day, when you're selling TV rights, somebody will buy your TV rights at, at, at some price at some point um, because of the, the live nature of it means that, you know, you've got to, as you know, it's kind of just strategizing about when's the right time to go to market, what's the right price point, how do I create the right kind of competition? And obviously you end up the day before a competition starts with no broadcaster saying, I, I, I almost will give this away just to get it on air because otherwise the utility of it is gone. In sponsorship, the most common refrain is, 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 or the most difficult thing to deal with is the waiting. Because often what happens is that you'll, well, there was a very big technology deal that we were very close to doing at, uh, at Formula One before I left. And it was literally, you know, it was like, waiting week after week oh we're just going to take it to one more board meeting we love this idea but we just want to get the opinion of one other person and then of course what happened was that just on the cusp of signing the pandemic hit and even in those very early days of the pandemic it was something it just made everybody very skittish and so immediately they were like well well, we're going to delay this 12 months now because which you know there's a bit of uncertainty sort of economic uncertainty in the marketplace so we'll just see how things go and then of course you know, it didn't end up happening because, you know, the, the impact of the pandemic was much greater than, than was realised at the time. But that that kind of fearfulness that exists in the sponsorship environment is much more prevalent than perhaps you get in the TV market. Yeah, no, I totally agree. As I said, I, I've been there, done that, and I would completely agree. It's a completely different kettle of fish there. Um, yeah, cool. Look, I mean, let's let's wrap up here. F one, um, you, you do, you know, you in when I when I was looking at your you what you had on on LinkedIn, you you did mention also esports and fan festivals and other stuff. So, you know, what, were there anything specific you were doing in that area, or um, you know, how how was that evolving as part of your your sort of sales pitches to to sponsors? Well, certainly, 
we the contracts changed a lot from just being about signage visibility and hospitality to including you know a more 360 holistic modern sponsorship proposition and you know going back to what i talked about uh, in the espn days you know sean bratchett having been a you know a very senior alumni of, of espn took that same philosophy of you know let's throw a bunch of different things at the wall and sort of see what sticks and so you know we did a huge fan festival in the center of london uh, we did one on uh, you know in la and a bunch of other places we did a, a extreme innovation series with the likes of Steve Wozniak, you know, found one of the founders of Apple, mm-hmm. uh, to sort of see uh, see if there's a business conference element that sits with it. Uh, launched esports, launched F1 OTT, and you know, some of these have been very successful, and some have been less successful. But the, you know, the key is always, you know, what do you, what lessons do you learn from the ones that haven't been successful, as well as how do you build on the ones that have been successful? And so, you know, that was hugely exciting to try and then figure out well how do all the different commercial models work with these new events and um yeah I, that was that was uh, you know a really fun uh, f- uh, fun time yeah i can see that i can see that now let's you know we've got about an hour in here and so it's a uh, nice timing here to you know take all the stuff which we shared and all the learnings from the different groups you know espn world rugby f1 etc and now you are, you know, founder, CEO of, uh, or, you know, joint partner there at 26 West Sport, um, you know, which you launched somewhat uh, in the middle of, of last year. Uh, you, know, talk, you know, share a bit about what is the vision of the company and, and uh, you know, what you guys are doing. It was somewhat accidental, to be honest with you. So when I left Formula One, I sort of uh, planned to, you know, take six months off, go and climb a mountain, find the meaning of life, you know, uh, probably some <laughs> some kind of midlife crisis. And then obviously with the pandemic, I, I was left looking for the meaning of life down the back of the couch. So it was, uh, I, I was sort of sitting at home and a few people had approached me asking about could I help them renegotiate some of their rights agreements, bearing in mind the, the situation we had with the pandemic? Uh, would I also help them with some new business ideas? And so that sort of uh, formed the, 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 that sort of coalesced my thinking around perhaps sort of putting those all under an umbrella. And so, you know, a lot of what, what I'm doing is advising organizations very on the very broad commerciality of sport. So it's everything from people looking to stage events and understanding how they might refinance the costs of the staging events through through commercial channels uh, as i mentioned you know reorganizing i'm doing some straight sponsorship agreements for for some people or trying to you know match some sponsors with some potential events and um and and indeed some tv distribution so you know pulling on some of the strands from from a bunch of my my previous roles and you know enjoying the breadth of it and i think that that's probably been part of my sort of you know conundrum or you know challenge has been that I, I've been involved in such a wide area of commercial sports of the commercial sports world that I'm somewhat selfishly reluctant to settle on one particular area and having your own consultancy allows you to be very self-indulgent to just work on the projects that you want and be involved with a wide variety of different people and and perhaps more importantly you know get to work a lot with you know people that I've met throughout the my career so far and you know who knows what the future holds uh, i've given up trying to predict what the future looks like other than to say that it's that it's always uh, very different and uh, and much more exciting than you expected it to be 
Yeah, no, that's good. That's for sure. Now, again, you know, you've been for 20 year plus years, We, you know, which we touched on, you were, let's say you worked for others, uh, even though certain roles clearly as you gives you lots of autonomy. But now you are truly your own boss, you know, and this is the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. So it's it's a you know good way to finish it off. Uh, you know, how is life as an entrepreneur uh, compared to, you know, knowing there is a regular paycheck coming, you know, every month? <laughs> um <laughs> So one of my observations is uh, you have to be careful. You know, I mentioned about being self-indulgent. I think you have to be careful that you balance that with a clear proposition and that you don't just take everything that comes to you. You know, I probably made the mistake early on to get involved with too many things, too many things full stop, but also too many things that were just things that I wanted to be involved in rather than uh, could see a, a financial reason to be involved in. And so you have to kind of almost and I, I don't know if you do the same, but I, I try and bucket things a little bit where I say, OK, this isn't making me a lot of money now, but hopefully will grow over time. This is uh, stuff which is kind of bread and butter, you know, nice, nice uh, enough money to just kind of that keeps turning over. And then perhaps a third bucket, which is a little bit more uh, altruistic and just either indulging a particular passion or tr trying to give back a little bit and support uh, different organizations that, you know, maybe wouldn't be able to afford a, you know, a day rate or, you know, a, a consultancy that, uh, you know, a commercial consultancy fee. So mm. I kind of try and divide it a little bit like that. I, I think it's a good way of looking at it. And yeah, definitely over the whatever my 25 years doing this, um, you, you always have to, you're always going to end up doing a little bit too much. Um, that's, I think it's just an basic habit of people you know because you do get excited over the ideas and stuff and and then you just need to quickly you know get yourself back into um stay focused on what you do know what you know best um you don't need to watch that you do things which obviously generate revenue and um but yeah you do pick things where you won't know initially what it is all about and you know they turn they potentially in some cases turn into the biggest opportunities you know for us but that was probably wwe where i had no idea that this thing could make money uh and became probably our biggest money spinner we've ever had as a, as a property um just because one of my staff was excited over it and and thought this was something we should be getting involved in so i'm sure you'll have a bit of that as well and and our passes will continue to cross uh, as they have over the years. Uh, maybe not as much Sportels anymore since, you know, well, you know, I don't know, last time they even ran it properly there. But uh, maybe other places we will catch up. So, Murray, this was good fun. Um, any last thoughts here on anything else uh, you wanted to share on uh, things you're doing or uh, we can wrap it up? I, I think that the one thing I would say is that, you know, and it's the advice I'd give to anybody, which would be to say, always be curious. I think this is such a fascinating business that we're all involved in, that there's so many different things that uh, that, that you can get engaged with and, and always ask questions. Because the other thing I always say is just because I've been doing this for a while doesn't mean I'm any smarter than somebody that's starting in the, in the industry tomorrow. Uh, and if they uh, ask me a question and I can't answer it, uh, then maybe maybe my ideas are not the best ideas in that particular area so yeah i mean it's been fascinating i love talking to you and uh, you know it's always great when we when we do get the opportunity to catch up because i think we're both super excited and passionate about this business that we're involved in yeah no definitely uh, and and great words to wrap this up here so right, thanks for your time there enjoy your morning in london and uh, i'm sure i'll catch you again soon i look forward to it thank you cheers
The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.